had, uh, if you didn't already pick up a sermon outline this evening, you'll find that helpful. So I'll give you a moment or so if you want to grab one of those. Otherwise, please turn in your Bibles to our passage this evening, which is Psalm 85. So as I said, Psalm 85 is our Psalm of the Month, and so this will give us a bit of opportunity uh, to understand this Psalm. So Psalm 85 is found on page 678 of the Pew Bible. Listen, this is God's Word. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him, and shall make his footsteps our pathway. Amen. May God bless us the reading of his word. Well, how often have you heard these words? Are we there yet? How much longer? You said that 10 minutes ago, and we're still not there. And if you've traveled with kids, I'm sure you've heard these familiar words. And even when children are not present, as adults, we are often thinking the same thing. Long journeys can be discouraging. Well, you're also on a journey in life. Your Christian walk is often described as a journey. We're looking forward to the end of that journey. We look forward to coming home and being with the Lord. But along the journey, you may often find yourself asking, are we there yet? For on that journey, there are ups and there are downs. One moment, everything is going well. You're elated. You love to be with God's people. You're excited to worship God, then the next moment you're discouraged. Your heart grows cold and indifferent. You see no point in being with God's people. You feel nothing in the worship of God. Well, what is your experience of the journey? Where are you this evening? Are you currently on high or are you on a low? And if you are on a low, how are you going to keep going on this journey? Well, Psalm 85, it shows you how to respond. 
We are unsure of the context to this psalm. It's assumed that it was written after the exile. God's people were allowed to return to Judah. There was much excitement. There's much joy. But their expectations were not met. This was not the golden era for Judah that was much anticipated. The rebuilding of the walls and the temple were, were slow. And they faced much opposition. The excitement of returning home had died down. Life was hard. There were many disappointments in this post-exilic period. And you too may have had a lot of expectations in your journey of life, whether that's expectations in your work or expectations with your friends or with your family, in your marriage, in your achievements, in your retirement. And instead, you have faced difficulties and disappointments and discouragements. So I want you to notice, turn to God in your discouragement. Bring your sin to him, for in him there is peace because of the work of Christ. So firstly, let's notice, you are to remember God's grace in the past. So the first thing you're to do in your discouragement Remember God's grace to you in the past. Verses 1 to 3. God is good, and he has been gracious to you. And that's why the psalmist remembers him. Notice that the psalmist is focused on what God has done in verses 1 to 3. You have been favorable. You have brought back. You have forgiven. You have covered all their sin. You have taken away. You have turned is all of God's doing. The psalmist rightfully acknowledges God's work. Now, too often, when we are discouraged, we look inward. Woe is me, is all that we can think of. We list all of our hardships. No, instead, you are to lift your eyes to God. You're to remember what he has done. He's shown you the greatest of mercies, great because you do not deserve his grace. And what is it that God has done for his people? Well, he has been gracious to them. He has released them from their captivity. He has forgiven them of their iniquity. He has dealt with their sins. Their sins have been covered. And so as a result, God is not angry. His wrath has been turned away. And this is what you, as one of God's children, enjoy. And it's all in the past tense. This is what God has already done in your life. As a child of God, you know God's grace. You've been made new. You've been brought from darkness into light. In him, you've been made alive. Now, we might not be sure of the context of the psalm, but we do know the writer of the psalm. It's the sons of Korah. Now, Korah, you may remember from the book of Numbers, led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, and so against ultimately God, for God was the one who had placed Moses and Aaron in authority. Korah's uprising led to the deaths of thousands of Israelites, for they followed Korah. Korah and his household, they were judged when the ground opened up and swallowed them up. Now, interestingly, the sons of Korah were not included in this judgment, and we aren't exactly sure why they were not included. 
Possibly they were older sons and so stood apart from their father's wickedness. And instead, they stood with God. And God in his graciousness did not cut off the line of Korah completely. So they are living proof of God's grace. They owe their existence to the fact that God was gracious to them. And so they lived their lives in dedicated service to God, ever thankful to their gracious Heavenly Father. They are an encouragement to you. God was willing to save them. He will save you too. And so it's important that you look back and remember God's grace. And goes Churchill has said, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And in a similar way, you must know your own history and be reminded of how God has been gracious to you and continues to be gracious to you. You don't need to be discouraged. Yes, you might be at rock bottom, but God is with you. And so you're not without hope. For remember how he has already been good to you. He has not changed. He's not now become cold and remote. No, he continues to be gracious and loving. And so as a child of God, you know this. You have experienced this. And God continues to be gracious to you. God doesn't now change. No, even in your discouragement, hold on to the truth that your God is a gracious God. This is what you are to remember. Well, secondly, pray to God in your discouragement, verses 4 to 7. So after looking to the past, now consider your present discouragement. We're not told what the discouragement was that was on the heart of the psalmist, but the devil likes to use your discouragement to lead you into sin, to think or to do something foolish. When that happens, you need restoration. That's what the psalmist is praying for. He's lost the joy of knowing God, and he asks God to cause your anger to us, or anger toward us, to cease. Now, why should God be angry? Maybe a friend comes up to you and begins by saying, Don't be angry with me. And straight away you wonder, What have they done? Or a child says to his mom or dad, don't be angry with me. And automatically, you know they have done something that they were not meant to do. So the psalmist has done something. Only sin will cause God to be angry. But in verses 1 to 3, God has turned away his anger. So why would God be angry again? Well, God hates sin. And if you continue in sin, you bring displeasure to God. You quench the Holy Spirit. You insult the grace that he has shown to you. And sadly, as Christians, we can have this licentious understanding of grace. And we considered this last week. The freedom that we have as a result of being in Christ, it does not mean you're now free to sin. Instead, you're free to serve. The false belief of thinking you're free to sin That actually demonstrates that you are enslaved to sin. An idol has come into your life. An idol that says it can offer you more than what God can give. An idol that says that the blessings that you have in God, the green pastures, the quiet waters that you enjoy in him, 
They do not compare to the pleasures that this idol has to offer. And yet the idol never delivers. I might give you a short buzz, but it's not lasting. Instead, it leaves you even emptier. It leaves you depressed. It leaves you feeling dead inside. James Montgomery Boyce says, Sin causes you to lose many blessings. These cannot be recovered. They are gone. But God can give new opportunities and new blessings. If you are one whose life has been ruined by sin, making your life a spiritual desert, you need to return to the one who can make your life fruitful again. If you turn to God, he will return to you and restore you. And this psalm pictures for us just how serious the condition is. I wonder if any of you you have completed a first aid course, and if someone stops breathing, you have to resuscitate them. They need air. They need to be revived. Well, only God can revive you spiritually. Your idols, your sins, they will only suffocate you. That's why the psalmist is crying out for restoration. He wants to be made alive again. He wants restoration. And Jesus is the life. That's why the psalmist goes to God, for in him he can be revived. So how are you doing in your Christian walk? Has something taken you away from God? Are you feeling empty? No longer feeling the joy of salvation? Well, like the psalmist, cry out to God to restore you. And notice the word again, revive us again. The psalmist has done this before. He has squandered God's grace. And maybe you're thinking, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep coming to God asking for forgiveness. But remember, in God there is mercy. In him there is salvation. Ortland says, for every again of our sin, there is an even greater again of his grace. This is the God you come before. Yes, he is angry with your sin, but he never stops giving out his mercy if you repent of your sin. Too often we lose hope. We often think there's no way God will have me back this time. This speaks more of how we operate. We are unwilling to forgive. We have a limited number of chances, and when they're used up, we say, it's over. God doesn't work that way. While we would never have ourselves back, that is not how God operates. God's love is unfeeling. Later in the sermon, we'll see why. But his unfeeling love is why you are to plea and cry out to him. So in him there is restoration. He will revive you again and again and again. So cry out to God for restoration. Well, thirdly, wait to hear from God and do not commit folly in verse 8. So in your discouragement, you have looked to the past. You have remembered what God has done. You brought your prayer to God and asked for restoration Well, now what are you to do? Well, you must wait upon God and listen to him. Some people are talkers, and they talk about their problem, 
and you hear every detail, they verbalize everything. When you try and interject, when you try and give advice, they don't want to hear it. They want to keep talking about their problem. Well, in many ways, we are all like that before God. We're all doing the talking. We are constantly giving excuses. But the question is, are you ready to listen to God? Verse 8, the psalmist resolves to hear God. The opposite of hearing God is described here as folly. Folly is when we forget God and do life without him. It's a lack of regard to the promises of God. It's not trusting the peace that he offers, that his peace is better than anything that this world has to offer. And so as a result, it leads to complacency in our Christian walk. We live in a world of distractions. Our phones are constantly in front of our faces. We have earbuds in our ears. We are bombarded with signs and images. And this noise, it distracts us from hearing God's voice. We do not hear him. And sadly, we do not want to hear him. We would prefer to hear the lies and the emptiness that this world has to offer rather than the truth that God speaks. Isn't that evident in the church today? People have no appetite for God, and that's seen in their lack of commitment to God's word. That's what's surprising here about Bloomington Reformed Presbyterian. There is a hunger for God's word. That's evident in your commitment to coming to church, even coming to the evening service, to Sunday school, to Bible studies. You're hungry for God's word. Sadly, many churches have reduced their time in God's word to maybe 10 minutes a week. I do not say this for you to now become proud because you like to listen to longer sermons. No, it is easy to spend time in God's word and still not be listening. Sadly, there are many professing Christians who are at church every Sunday sitting under God's word, but they do not live in accordance to God's word. They're not truly listening. Instead, they are committed to folly. So how about you? Are you committed to God's word? Are you listening? That should be seen by an excitement as you approach God's word. For his word is truth. His word is powerful. His word will bless you as you seek to live by it. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. God's promises They encourage you. And so join in with the psalmist in verse 8 saying, I will hear. I am listening to what God is saying to me. Just consider the excitement when there's a new blockbuster movie released at the cinema or it's a new season of your favorite TV show. But what about the excitement of hearing God's word and knowing his peace? a peace that surpasses all understanding. Martin Luther says, For feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Not else is worth believing. I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For lo, all things shall pass away. His word shall stand forever. As if you want to live your life to the fullest, You must resist the folly of this world and instead listen to God.
Well, finally, notice, through the work of Christ, you have eternal peace with God. So while you wait and you listen to God's word, whatever it is that you're facing, you are to remember the future you have to look forward to, and that's because of Christ. Consider Paul, the Apostle Paul, in that prison cell. He was waiting upon God, but still he had joy. Now, he did not have joy in his prison cell. He did not enjoy that. No, his joy was found in God. He had confidence because he knew that he was eternally secure, even though he was facing death. And these final verses speak of the hope that you also enjoy. There is no denying life is difficult. We live in a suffering world. That is normal. But for the Christian, we have this glorious future. In these final verses, we read of this evocative poetry. This is not a dry, systematic theology textbook. No, these words are written to excite you. That mercy and truth meet together that righteousness and peace kiss. And then we read of how this has a cosmological effect. Both heaven and earth are transformed. What incredible words. What a picture the psalmist gives us of the unlikely. Mercy and truth coming together. Righteousness and peace. Kidner in his commentary writes, the climax is one of the most satisfying descriptions of Concord spiritual, moral, and material to be found anywhere in Scripture. But where do these words come from? These are similar words to that which God used to reveal himself to the Israelites in Exodus 34. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. And so the psalmist He is using these characteristics of God and how they come together for all who are in God, all who are part of his kingdom. Paul writes in Romans 14, for the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But how is this possible? How can God be righteous and yet show us peace? We are unrighteous. How can God show us mercy and yet uphold truth? Well, these words are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. John describes Jesus in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 9 in our text, we read of glory dwelling in our land. Well, that is the glory of Jesus Christ. John describes him full of grace and truth. Grace and truth is a Greek translation of love and faithfulness. And this grace and truth, Christ makes available to you. John 1 verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so it's through Christ that we are reconciled to God. The curtain in the temple is torn. The way back to the garden is now open. We can now dwell with God in his kingdom. 
Paul writes to the Colossians saying, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And Keller, in writing about this, says, When Jesus bore our punishment on the cross, love and holiness kissed. They were both fulfilled at once. Love without holiness is mere sentiment. Righteousness and law without a grasp of grace is pharisaicism. The gospel keeps truth 